morning. So we're going to turn to uh, John's Gospel for our scripture reading uh, today. And the readings in chapter 6, John's Gospel, uh, chapter 6 and at verse number 25. Uh, this passage is one of the great discourses, uh, one of the great formal teaching occasions uh, that marks out uh, John's Gospel in many ways. There are quite a number of these. This takes place uh, in a synagogue, uh, and we're going to take this over two weeks because it's quite a lengthy discourse. And uh, what it does is it includes the first of these famous I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the course of John's Gospel. So on seven different occasions, he says, I am something, and we have I am the bread of life, stated twice over uh, in this passage. So let's read it um, from verse 25 of of chapter 6. And uh, because there's some parts that are fairly complicated, I think uh, to get the benefit of this, uh, keep your Bible open so you can follow down as uh, as the message uh, goes on. So verse 25 of chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea... They came to him, and uh, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, 
Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts. So let's try and and come to what really is the very heart of this this lengthy uh, discourse that, that Christ teaches. And the heart of it, of course, is that great phrase when he says, I am the bread of life. Now, of course, that's a description. Um, he's, he's describing who he is. He uses this particular form of speech, this metaphor. But it's more than just a description of who he is and what he can provide. There's more to it than that. And the Jews would have picked up on this immediately. Because in saying, I am, he's, he's employing the name of God. Jehovah, or Yahweh, as Ian would say. You know, um, I am that I am, the ever-present one, the being, the self-existent one. When Moses at the burning bush had said, who, who will I say sent me? What is your name? God said, say that I am has sent you. And, and, and this is part, deliberately, this is part of what he says, as is the case with all these other great descriptive seven I am sayings. It's very deliberate as far as a, a claim and an announcement of divinity. I am Jehovah. I am the bread of life. An interesting thing here is that there's a, there's a fair bit of symmetry uh, in this passage. These are not just kind of random things that are just stuck down in any order. Uh, there's a tremendous connection. And the connection is this, that he's just performed a miracle. What was the miracle about? The feeding of the 5,000. How did he feed them? He fed them with loaves and fish. And so on the back of feeding with bread, he now announces himself as the bread of heaven. And in the course of it, as there is a bit of toing and froing with the audience, they throw it back to him and they said, well, what about the manna that our fathers had in the wilderness and they were fed with as they, they went through the desert? And of course, that then comes into it as well. I am the true manna. I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. So you can see how all of this is tied in together very carefully. Now, in reading this and in thinking about this claim, this announcement of Christ as the bread of life, there is one very important point that we need to, to, to bear in mind. And we don't always just get this immediately because of where we are in the world at this time. 
Because when we think of bread, we think of something that's a luxury for us. You know, we can go to the baker shop and we can have our pick of whatever it is we fancy. You know, if you're like, like me from the west of Scotland, you love that great that plain loaf, you know, with these big doorsteps on the side of it, especially when it's toasted. But you've got a whole range of stuff. You've got your sourdough, you've got your brioche, you've got everything that you could have, and it's a luxury. That, that's not the sense in which this is spoken when Christ says, I am the bread of life. Bread was a necessity. You know, particularly when you think of the point about here were these people who required to be fed by Christ, the 5,000. Particularly when you think about people who were traveling through a wilderness for 40 years, barren landscape, nothing to eke out of the soil. They were provided with bread that sustained them, that basically saved their life. It was a necessity for them. And this last week or two, you know, we've seen these horrendous pictures of, of Outswitch and uh, the, the faces pressed up against the, the, the barbed wire, you know, these emaciated bodies because of, of lack of basic food and what that does for you and the need that there is just for bread at times. And, and this is really the force of the statement here when the Lord Jesus says, I, for you, present myself here. You need to understand me in these terms. I am the bread of life. You know, so it's not so much, you know, I can, I can sustain you and just nourish you. It's the fact that I, I can give you life that will keep you alive as opposed to dying. And of course, he's, he's using this not in a physical, material sense, but he's talking about it in a spiritual way. If we somehow or another had, had a camera that didn't just take a picture of, of bodies, but of our soul. You know, really what the Lord Jesus is saying, the point I'm getting across is that our souls can be starved. They can be emaciated. They can be haggard. They can be withering away. They can be on the point of death. Our souls can have hollowed out faces. Our souls can have sunken eyes. And I am the bread of life. And if you eat of me in your soul, you will live, you will not die. That, that is the force. That is the point of it all. So, I've got two main kind of things I want to try and say here. And the first one is this. When he said this, how, how did the hearers in the synagogue at that time, uh, you, you'll see the fact that it was in a synagogue um, from down in verse 59 uh, in Capernaum. You know, how, how did they react to this? How, how did they respond to him saying that? And there are four points, really, that uh, I have as far as the response is concerned. The first point um, that we see is... Um, in verse number 26, where Jesus says to them, Truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, they were seeking him. You know, it's very interesting. If you just back up a little bit and try and imagine the scene, well, you don't have to imagine it. It's described for you. 
Christ has gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in this boat, you know, eventually. But there's, there's been a little armada. It's like, uh, uh, it's like uh, you know, the little boats that we, we know about. They, they didn't, they didn't um, think, you know, where, where is Christ? He's, he's, he's somehow or another on the other side. We must follow him. We must get to him. We, we must be with him. And, and the only way they could do that uh, was they, they got in little boats, and all these little boats are sailing across the other side. I mean, if ever there was a picture of excitement in the population, of real enthusiasm, you know, there was a real grip as far as the, the countryside was concerned, and the focus of this was Christ. And all the little boats pile across the water, they moor wherever, or they're on the beach, or they're on the shingle, and they're all running up into the town, and they pile into the synagogue, and they're there. Christ is here again. Let's, let's hear what he has to say. And of course, he's got insight, the wisdom of God. And he looks out at the audience in the synagogue on this day, and in fact, it's interesting. You, you, you notice the statement in the verse commenced with truly, truly, I see unto you. And that is repeated about three times during the course of the whole first half of this discourse. You'll see it down again in verse number 32. You'll see it again down in verse 53. And the point he's making is this. Here's the truth. This is, this is the truth. You know, I know the truth. And, and of course, there is such a thing as truth. Let's just state that again in our day and age when there are so many opposing opinions points of view everybody feeling that well this, depending on the situation this might hold true but if we came from it in another way then well there would be grades of meaning grades of truth when we come to the scriptures very important for, for us to assert our belief in the authority of the bible to have a conviction in the truth of the Word of God, that despite opinion that changes depending on when we live or where we live or who is speaking, you know, we believe in the truth of the Bible, what it says, you know. And, and of course, the whole point of standing up here is not for me to give my opinion anyway. It is to, to, to try and read the Bible together with you and to try and allow the Bible to speak for itself. So it's the message of, of Christ and his truth. And so don't lose that saying, truly, said again for emphasis, truly I say to you. And what he said to them as he looked out at them, first of all, was this, I know why you're here. I know why you're here. You might not just appreciate it, but you're really here because you were there when I did the miracle with the loaves and the fishes. And you're here for the same. You want the same again. You're, you're not really here for me, although you think you are. You're here for me, but only in as much as what I can give you at, at this physical level. And I know that. That's the truth. Now, that's a challenging thing for all of us. Christ looks down in all our hearts, in all our hearts, just now. And he says, I know why you're here. And some of us might be here today and our hearts are deceptive. Not because we really want Christ. We're not really here for Christ. At the true level, we're not here for Christ, for worshipping Christ, for receiving Christ, 
for following him. We're here for something else that is associated with Christ, but not for Christ himself. And he said, I know why you're here. And some of us might be here for social social reasons. Some of us might be here for emotional purposes. Some of us might be here for religious reasons. What we have to do is just think about that. Because Christ turns that on his hearers on that day. And he says, I know you're, you're only here because you, you had the loaves and the fishes. And you ate your fill and you want more again. That is the first response he talks about. Second one, second point as far as response, is down at verse 27. Where he says this. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. He says, you're laboring. You're earnest. You're serious. You're intense. You're working hard. But don't labor for stuff that at the end of the day, it's gone. And it perishes, flies away, vaporizes. What you need to do is to be earnest and to labor and to be serious about what matters. And what matters is the food that produces eternal life. How serious are we? How how deliberate? How intense? How committed to getting the spiritual food of God. A lot of us might work pretty hard in various areas of our lives. Those of you who are studying, you know, when it gets up to exam time, you you know, you're giving it a lot. You know, you're burning the midnight oil. The coffee gets consumed a little bit more. You know, wonder how much time do I spend concentrating and studying giving effort to the things of God compared to other things. If I was to tot up the times, and if if I I was just to jot down the amount of time that I gave, and I speak to myself, to the things of God, the Word of God speaks to me today. You know, what we have to do is labor. Labor not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures eternal life. That was the second one. Number three. Response number three. Well, they come back and they they respond to that. And what they say is this in verse number 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, this kind of reveals their response. You know, and this is something that we're all into. You know, and it's part of the heart of human humanity. And it's this. What do we need to do? Just tell me what to do and, and, and let me contribute uh, and let me, let me pay my dues on this. Just tell me what I need to do. And, that, that, and that, you could write that over all the religions of the world. You know, Tell us what to do to gain favor with God. All right? And look at the reply of Christ. I'll tell you what to do. And it's a, it's a kind of little twist on this because to do is not to do. 
That's a little take on Hamlet in case you missed that one. Um, you know, to do is not to do. To do is to believe. You know, this is the work of God. The work of God is to believe in him who sent me. All right? So if you want to do something, believe. That's what you have to do. And we're going to expand on this a little bit further. Uh, But belief really needs to be understood at a whole number of levels. The the most basic level is information. You know, I need need to believe something about myself, about my frailty, who I am as a human being made in the image of God, but fallen. I need to believe something about Christ, who he is, the son of the living God, uncreated God of very God, became fully human, the bread of life, to, to give life to a spiritually impoverished world, that he died on the cross as an atonement to appease the wrath of God, to believe that I, in my brief life, you know, at the end of it, will step off the cliff, you know, and yet there will be an eternity, either in heaven or hell. Faith, belief, involves information. But at the end of it, it involves real trust and confidence and commitment to rely on Christ, to bank your soul on that. That that is the work of God. And then the fourth thing, the final one, they kind of betray themselves again in verse number 30. When they said to him, well, you know, what sign will, will you do that we might see and believe you? What, what work are you going to perform? And, you know, they chip in with this example of their forefathers who ate the manna in the wilderness. I mean, this is ridiculous. He had just performed a sign. He had just done the loaves and the fishes. And, and for some people, in their unbelief, it is never enough. It is never enough. No matter what you say or what you show or what you prove or demonstrate, it will never be enough. We need to be brought to the point of of belief. So, these are the four responses. And uh, we're now now kind of uh, transitioned away from the, the loaves and the fishes bread to the second bread, which is the manna, which they introduce here. Now, what was the manna? Now, if you want to jot down some references for that, the fullest one is in Exodus chapter 16. You also read about it in Numbers chapter 11 and Numbers 21 and Psalm 78. And uh, here they are. They're traveling through the wilderness out of Egypt. Forty years it will take them, and they're grumbling. And they say, we wish we were back in Egypt you know, at least we had something to eat. The garlic, you know, the cucumbers, the different bread of Egypt. We've got nothing here. We're starving. Why did you bring us out to kill us in the wilderness? People grumble against Moses who takes it to the Lord. And among the provision of the Lord, as they get up the next day and the dew melts away, they look on the ground and, and they think it's like frost. You know, something white and small and round like coriander seed is the description that's given. 
And they go out and they look at it and they say, what's this? And the translation of what's this is manna. That's what manna means. Manna means, what is it? And every day, God provided that for 40 years. The day they entered into the promised land, the manna stopped. The manna stopped. And there was provision for them. You know, those who gathered a little each day had enough. Those who gathered a lot, depending on the side of their family, they had enough. It was sufficient. It was God's provision. It was bread from heaven. Psalm 78 describes it as the food of angels. It was angels' food that God gave to the people so that they could survive, so that they could be sustained and nourished and provided for. You know this? There came a point, and you read about this in Numbers 21, verse 5. There came a point when the people, as they ate their angels' food that came from heaven, the bread of heaven, they said, I can't be bothered with this stuff anymore. You know? In fact, they said, our souls just loathes this light bread. I cannot face this stuff again. You know? I don't want it anymore. And they loathed it. They despised the bread of heaven. You know, what a message. And, and, and you get that here. Because as the people reply to the teaching of Christ, if you got that down in verse 41, the Jews are grumbling because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how is he saying, I've come down from heaven? They despised him. They loathed Christ the bread of heaven, in the same way as their forefathers had done. Remarkable. Here is God's gift to us. You know, better than angels' food, spiritual food and nourishment that will save our starving souls, Christ himself. And in their case, their familiarity with him, bread, contempt. Well, we know who he is. Can't be true. And how familiar at times we are with this wonderful book that we're reading from and with the message of Christ. And we, we can't get by that familiarity and you know, the freshness and the power and the reality of all is lost on us at times. And we despise it. We've heard it before. Well, if we know this, we've had it time and time again. And it's the same old stuff. And you know, our souls loathe this bread. People can have that response to Christ. We can have that response to Christ. Familiarity. What a disaster as far as our response is concerned. So as we close here, what do we, what do we understand? This is, this is the next bit I want to get. Not just the response, but to understand really the meaning of Christ saying, I am the bread of life. Because he does go on to, to, to give that description. Three things. Number one, and we're down at verse number 35, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So taking and eating the bread of life, first of all, is not some things. It does not mean the Lord's Supper, by the way. <laughs> you know, parts of the church have taught this for years. You know, we, we take the bread, it changes into the actual flesh of Christ, and that does, that's a means of grace to me. The blood, the, 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 the wine changes into the, the blood of Christ, and, and I take that, and I receive that. And, and that's a means of grace to me. That's rubbish. I mean, it's quite clear when you, when you read this that this is not physical, material things. It's, it's spiritual. This is metaphor. He's talking about spiritual truth, but uses metaphor to try and convey that truth. And so eating the bread of life it's, it's, it's about faith. It's about belief. It's a way of expressing that, that I receive Christ himself into my soul by believing in him. That's, that's what is meant. Secondly, coming to Christ and eating of him, receiving him, having faith in him, is fundamentally a work of God in the soul of men and women. Now let me just try, and this is the kind of complicated bit, but let me try and take you through this. And we're now down at verse 37, where Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I mean, that's a wonderful verse to hang on to. That's a tremendous, a tremendous verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me. If you look down at verse 44, that's a kind of comparable parallel verse. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written. And they will all be taught by God. That's a quote from Isaiah 54, by the way. What this is really saying is this. I can only come to God if God himself works in my soul. You see, my understanding and my heart is not free. My heart and my head is not independent. You know, it's not neutral. I'm not able to just have an objective view of the teaching of Christ and weigh things up for and against and make the right decision. You can't do that and I can't do that because my heart and my mind is prejudiced. My heart, every human heart, is biased. And that bias will always take me away from God and take me towards myself and towards my sin. Always. And so the only thing that will, will bring me to Christ and will draw me towards Christ is God himself. Nobody can come to me, says Christ, unless the Father draws him. 
You know, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast them out. I will never turn them away. And so what we have to pray for is, is the work of God in our hearts. To, to change that darkness and to change that prejudice. It's only God that can do that. And he does that through his word and through his spirit applied to our hearts. That should give us massive confidence, Christians. You know, massive confidence. The fact that it's God's work. It's not my little contribution. God has worked, and therefore he will raise me up at the last day. You know, and he'll never cast me out. And with confidence, I know that I am his. And as it says in verse 39, that he will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We don't often think about the last day, do we? The day when Christ comes and all the dead will be raised. And on that last glorious day when Christ returns and the voice of the archangel is heard and the dead in Christ rise, Christ will raise me because I am his and because the work of God has been done in my heart. All of grace, nothing of us. But it gives you confidence in your salvation, not doubt at all. Now, just as we close this here, um, what I'd like to say is this. Although there is the work of God, that does not mean to say that there is fatalism here and that we just twiddle our thumbs and have no contribution and do nothing. We have to believe. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, whoever eats the bread of life. And there is a specific point that is made here and uh, it's down in verse number 51, where it says this, The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's my flesh. Now, I mean, this must have been offensive to the group who were listening to him. I mean, they must have been appalled at this, completely shocked at the kind of language that Jesus is saying, I give my, I'm going to give my flesh. You have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood, he goes on to say. And they must have been thought it was talking like cannibalism or something. You know? But he's not. What he's talking about is not just receiving Christ's teaching, but it is receiving Christ's death. He's talking about Calvary here. He's talking about the cross that lies before him when he gives his life and the need for people to receive the meaning of Christ's death and rely and depend on the atoning death of Christ for my sin to cleanse me. That is truly receiving Christ. So this passage is not about the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper, in some way, of course, pictures the body, and the blood of Christ. And we're going, to, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper in a moment. And as we participate in it, it helps the Christian to say again, as the bread is eaten, the 
the body of Christ was given for me. And, and I, by faith, have received Christ. And I remember Christ. And when they take the cup, it does symbolize the death of Christ and his blood that was shed. And it helps me to remember that the blood of Christ was shed for me, for me, on behalf of me, instead of me. And, and I accept that, I receive that, I ingest that, I feed on that. Not on the symbol, but on the reality of it. The symbol helps me. And that's what, as Christians, we are now about to do. Maybe to say, along with a hymn writer, I'm just going to quote this. This is a, an old, old hymn, translated from the French, I think, in the, in the 12th century. And this is what it says. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still, we drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. I am the bread of life. Now shall we pray. Lord, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and all his greatness and sufficiency, how he is portrayed and depicted here in this passage and presented as the, the bread of life. Help us, Lord, in our response to that great fact to receive him, to feast on him, to feed on him, to assimilate him, to ingest Christ into our very souls and hearts and beings. He is the only one who can impart life to our corrupted and dying souls. Lord, thank you for the sufficiency of Christ. He is all that we need. Christ is all that we need. And so, Lord, in all our hearts, may we respond to him. And as those of us who love him come to obey his commands in taking bread and wine, may it be a moment of joy and thrill as we say, his body given for me, his blood for me. I again just reaffirm my faith in him as we ask in his name. Amen.